0: Well, good morning to you. Thank you, Joe, for the ministry of the Word of God. I um, very much appreciate uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, one of the things Joe said that captured my thought there for a moment was this comment that uh, the Lord is interested not just in rebuilding walls, but in rebuilding lives, right? That's almost a direct quote. I modified it to fit me. but. Uh, I say that because the topic that we'll take up at this hour is very much about rebuilding lives. If you're uh, a life that uh, doesn't need rebuilding, I would suggest that you probably know a life that needs rebuilding. And the topic that we have uh, chosen to take up is the topic of the principles of God's Word as it relates to marriage. And if you're here today and you're not married or you're unmarried, you can say, well, I think I'll just uh, check out. I suggest you shouldn't. I suggest that uh, the principles of God's Word would have a great deal of uh, applicability exactly where you're at. But we're going to apply them specifically to the marital realm. So yesterday we began to look at uh, the beginning, and we began to look in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. You should probably turn to Genesis chapter 3 while I do this short review. And yesterday we we looked at how uh, things were were really quite good, except one thing was declared not good. Now, it's it's one matter if you and I say things are good or not good, but it's quite a different matter when God says that because uh, God has a way of being right all the time. And if he, uh, if he uh, says it's not good, well, then it's not good. And so he made that comment specifically concerning the isolation of man, his beloved creature, although God himself communed, fellowshiped with man, regular, you might say, 24-7. Thus, to walk together in the cool of the day was a normal, natural event. And just an outflow of their ha- camaraderie from that particular day. God and man having that sort of union. And yet God would say it's not good for him to be alone. And so he took that which was from his side and formed another human being. Unique. Unique in their loyalty. Unique in their bond. Unique in their harmony. Unique in their physicality. All of that unique. You can't get that anywhere else. You can't get it from the internet. You can't get it from the gaming world. You can't get it from your iPhone, even though you think you can. You can't get it from pets. This is all unique. And so God had that in mind. Now, one of the things that I didn't comment on, and I'd like to spend a moment just to mention, was the message the Lord God gave at the, as the officiant of the very first marriage. And as you recall, there were no bride, uh, bridesmaids or groomsmen. There were just these two. Maybe the angels filled in, I don't know. But here's what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And I mentioned to you that phrase, the two shall become one flesh, is requoted four times in the New Testament, three of which referring to specific, uh, specific points the Spirit of God is making. I'll cover that in just a moment. But I'd like you to look at that phrase, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And and I I think we have to to think about that just for a second because what God is saying is that there will be crafted a new family unit. You mean using the terms father and mother, there's a family unit that will be established. And the first um, building blocks of the family unit are the husband and wife. I say this to you parents, you young parents in particular. I want you to remember something. The children come to live with the parents. The parents do not go live with the children. What do I mean by that? You must maintain the integrity of your marriage if your children have a chance to find their Heavenly Father. That's kind of bold to say, but it's very true. I want you to know that the children come to live with you and they don't dominate the home. You set the tone for the home. You set the dynamic of the home, and it, it begins and ends with the stability and integrity of mom and dad as husband and wife. There's a child here today, one of my own, who several years ago, that would be you, William. You, you've heard the story? Yeah, I know. He's been to many conferences. I'm afraid he's one day he's just going to start the story before I get there. Well, one day, Janet and I are in the kitchen And uh, I had just come in from whatever I was doing, probably shearing the sheep, I'm sure. And so I was giving her a big sweaty hug, and she loves that. And uh, I was just squeezing her tight, and little William comes up. And he was much smaller than He was around four or five. And he put an arm around my leg and an arm around his mother's leg, And he just held on like he was riding uh, some type of ship or animal or something. Just held on. One foot on her foot, one foot on mine, arm on each leg. And he was looking at straight up and he was just beaming. As if to say, thank you mom and dad for being husband and wife. You see, where do we get that? That comes from this officiants or the Lord God's message of his official marriage, of the official marriage. He said, uh, a man and woman, they need to leave. And that word means to relinquish. It means there is a, 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 a letting go of the previous security that was found in mom and dad. This was a hard struggle for us when we got married. I didn't know how all that I was holding on to. Let me tell you a quick story just to add a little bit of, little bit of reality to it. When, uh, when we first got married, the smartest man I knew was my father, right? He knew how to fix anything. That old commercial where the car drove by and the grandmother said, found, found, sounds like the crossover pipe, you know, that Midas commercial, for those of you who remember that, right? I mean, that's my dad. He could leave, get in the car. You, you hear that noise? I don't hear a thing. But It sounds like blah, 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 blah. And that's actually all I heard was blah, 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 blah and I take it in and he was right. So the car was making some noise. I actually was awake enough to hear it. And I uh I thought, "Well, I got to fix this." And we're we're a very poor medical student. I was a poor medical student. My my wife was making all the money. <laughs> and so we were we were all kind of just surviving and I didn't know what to do about the car and so I call my father up and I say, "Hey, dad, my car's making this noise. What do you think?" And he goes, "Well, that's probably going to be A, B, or C." And it just right on, you know. I I was so thrilled. He told me how to fix it. It's going to cost me like 10 bucks. So I go into Janet. She's in the other room. She's, she's cr- uh, cross-stitching. I said, hey, guess what? I just talked to my father. He told me that, that the car probably has this problem. It only costs us about $10. She goes like this. That's nice. What do you mean that's nice? This is great. This is not nice. This is beyond nice. She goes, well, you know, we're married now. Yeah, we are. Yeah. I just thought maybe you might want to talk to me first about the car before you asking your father. I said, you know something about a car? <laughs> so he goes, no. I don't know anything about the car. But I'd like you to ask me before you ask your dad because we're together now. And you know what I did? I went, oh. And suddenly I realized that in my little world of emotional dependency, I was fully linked to the approval of my father. And I had to actually relinquish that. Now, I'm not saying you don't try to still want to please your parents, but there is a unique now new bond that demands my first loyalty. Many young people fail right there. And they can't give it up. Maybe they can't give up their friends. Maybe they can't give up their habits or whatever things were neutral habits that they enjoy. Maybe they can't give up this, this desire to please mom and dad, which is you're, you're, it's built in with you and, and our families. And yet it has to be done physically, emotionally, and yes, even spiritually, where now the couple has a personal accountability before the God in heaven whom, to whom you will give a report, you will give an accounting at the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord's not going to say to your parents, uh, uh, He's going to say, now, uh, uh, wh- why did they do this? He's going to talk to you. He's going to ask you the hard questions, right? That was a very tough lesson. My wife had to learn the same thing. And we both grew in our relationship. <laughs> that adds to the integrity and the stability of the marriage. Now notice it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That word cleave means to adhere. It's... Um, it's, uh, it's the same word, um, different context, so that's where we have to be careful. But do you remember this guy, Adino? I always, always like that name. <laughs> Short for, long for Dino, but it's Adino. The Esnite. He's the guy, one of David's mighty men that he took on the Philistines and he used the sword so much that it stuck to his hand. You know, I've actually seen things stuck to people's appendages. And we've had to try to peel them away it's not very pretty it's very painful and i would add that it rips the tissue now what do i mean by this i mean this this is what i'm trying to say that when you adhere to your wife if you ever try to sever them if you ever try to take them apart the two have a measure of destruction that's exactly what happens. Why is God saying this? Because He is emphasizing the permanence, the permanence of this officiating union. He is emphasizing the, how do we say, the longevity. Make no mistake, that's exactly what He means. Now when this very verse came up, in the New Testament, which would be uh, in Matthew and also in Mark, Mark 10 specifically, the Lord Jesus uses this, this quote here to, in, to to point out the permanence of the marital union. And he said it this way. He says, now, there was not always this way where you could issue a certificate of divorce for any reason. That was not God's original intention. intention but because of the hardness of your heart, God has done this and this and this. But he was saying very specifically, I encourage and and." Exhort you, then you must recognize the permanence of the marital relationship. I didn't make it permanent. God made it permanent. If you have an argument with that, then you must talk to God about it. But I've checked this many times. It hasn't changed in many decades. Now having said that, I think we should uh, continue our, our little review. So what happened was we, we looked at God's beautiful way he made man and woman and their, their union and their transparency, naked and not ashamed, as it says, their co-regency, I didn't mention that, but they were both charged in chapter, uh, chapters 1 and 2 to subdue the earth. It's in the plural. They both were important in, in uh, fulfilling God's uh, command, God's edict to manage creation. They were co-regents. That goes to this idea in the New Testament. We're co-heirs. There's something that is an equivalency involved. And yet, in this text, as well as the one we'll look at later this morning, there is an order that has to be preserved. There is an equivalency and yet a voluntary order that is followed. That'll be brought out in the New Testament. Now, having said that, we saw that beautiful relationship, man and woman, reflecting the relationship between God and his creature. We, we had to ask the question, well, what happened? What happened to all this beauty, this harmony, this, this joy? And, and we looked at how Satan, through the serpent, came and he marred the character of God, uh, not only in, in questioning it, he outright lied about God's statement, and then he impugned his character. And he just said, you know, God knows, and you day eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He didn't say anything else. He let Eve conclude that therefore God doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want you to know more than you need to know. So go ahead and eat the fruit. And then what she did is she looked and she, and she reversed the order of God's authority and word governing mind, will, and emotions, governing physical decisions, and now made physical decisions, king and mind, will, and emotions follow suit, and then the word of God now shrinks to nothingness. And that's what we bring in in our nature of sin. That is the nature that we bring in to our uh, existence as human beings. God corrects that, When you become a Christian, when you trust Christ as Savior, He gives you a nature that is the exact opposite of that, and that old nature is rendered powerless at the cross. But nonetheless, that thinking can dominate, and thus the New Testament says repetitively, renew your mind, renew your mind. Now having said that, what happens next in the drama is, is in chapter 3, you have the temptation, the sin, and several things unfold, and uh, see if we can just add a little bit of, I don't know, um, uh, rungs to the ladder. First of all, there was discovery, and their eyes were opened, right? The second thing that happened was there was a loss of dignity. It says that they, uh, they knew they were naked in verse 7, and then subsequently they were disgraced, so that they sewed fig leaves together to hide themselves. What happens next is they distance themselves. They distance themselves from the Lord. And I would add that there would be a distance between each other. You'll notice that in the blame game in the next paragraph. But they distance themselves from God, they hid themselves, and then there was denial. There was denial. So we had, we had discovery, we had a loss of dignity, we had disgrace, we had distance, and we had denial. Who told you, and you can read it with me in verse 8 or verse 9... And so the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden. This is in chapter 3. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There was denial and it says in verse 11, well, who told you you were naked? And yesterday we ended at this point where brokenness needs to be, be brought forth quickly. He did not break. And he says, I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, well, it was the woman. So notice the denial there. I was afraid. He didn't answer the question. That's what happens when sin enters into the equation. And I would add that all these things I've just described, including the blame game, which we'll talk about in a second, happens as a natural element of the nature of sin. Have you ever argued with your spouse and recognized these things? That, That there is disgrace, there's a loss of dignity, there's denial. I didn't do that. And the words become sharp and the words become cutting as we distance ourselves. And we notice that happens when we have uh, uh, issues that are undealt with between husband and wife. The same types of things that happen between man and God exactly reproduces itself between one human being and another. This is what brings it, what we inherit into the, into the marriage because of our nature of sin. You wonder why it doesn't work out. Well, this is why. This is the beauty of God bringing in the, na- the divine nature of Himself and implanting in it within you so that suddenly this, this destruction can be reversed. Now, notice what it said at the, at the blame game. The blame game was, was deferral. It's the woman you gave me. It's the woman. Now, I don't know how you think, men, but I'm very good at the blame game. Are you? Let me tell you what happened. Before I had my eyes operated on, I I wore glasses, and they were very thick. Uh, You you could easily say they were Coke bottle-like. And for those of us who wear glasses or have vision problems, we're impaired visually, we know exactly where we put our glasses at night, don't you? You bet. And if you move them, I will kill you. That's how it works. Okay, so I put them right there, and and you can't even move them an inch because I know exactly, and because I can't see them, right? And so I got them right there. And at night, at this particular night, it was raining and storming and lightning and thunder and we have a bunch of windows in our room and, and the lightning went off and kind of woke me up and, and you know, when you hear the rain, what do you got to do? You got to go to the bathroom. So I got up and, uh, you know, it's running water, right? And so I, I, and you know, when you're, it's the middle of the night and you don't, you don't have your glasses on, you're purposely trying to keep your eyes as tightly closed as possible. So I'm feeling my way along the room and I find the bathroom and I go in there and I take care of things and I'm coming out. Well, my my wife was stirred by the same thing. And then she started to come into the bathroom and we have this sort of double door and and she's trying to keep her eyes shut because we want to go back to sleep. And we actually come together and we meet each other nose to nose, literally. Now, when that happens, when our noses are mere millimeters apart, the Lord sends a wonderful flash of lightning that suddenly... (laughs) brightens the entire bathroom in addition to that she had on the shimmering nightgown which you know like when you go into those black lights at the tunnel at the amusement park and you she'd lit up like a candle so here I am my eyes are closed I can't see very well I'm I'm feeling my way we're nose to nose and suddenly she looks like a ghost ah! That's what I, did. I, just, I about lost it you should have seen it no you should not have seen it it was really terrible Then I said, and she, of course, responded in a similar manner with an equal hair uh, hair raising scream. And I said to her, Get this out of all the things on the planet I could say, guess what I said? Why did you scare me? (laughs) I am so good at the blame game, at deferral. That's part of the nature of sin. And when that begins to erupt in your marriages, guess what? You are, you are participating in the post-fallen condition. It seems to come out so quick, so naturally. Why? Because that's exactly the nature that makes up sin. And it corrupts and corrodes. You almost get the idea that if this thing doesn't get taken care of, marriages are doomed. And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I want you to see how this begins to pull you apart. But God is not going to institute a wonderful thing called marriage and leave you to hang yourself. He actually brings history forward to this moment of the cross where sin is finally paid for through the death of an individual. And therefore, through His resurrection, He grants you, what does it say in Romans? That you might walk in newness of life. Not in the oldness of life, but in the new life. Not participating in the blame game. Not participating in the denial. Most men and women, when there is problems in a marriage, you will hear denial upon denial upon denial. I wonder how much that aches the heart of God. Because at the fall, there was only denial. It, 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 I was afraid because, you know, I, what, what about the sin? Well, I was afraid. Yeah, I wasn't dressed. You came at a bad time. It, well, really, it's, it's the woman you gave me. It, was, it seemed like it was yesterday. He's going, wow, what a deal. Bone in my bone, flesh in my flesh. I can't believe it. What a gift. You know, now she's like the enemy. Does that not happen in marriages? Post-fallen condition. It's in play. you got to recognize that. And then it goes on. It says that she then blamed who? Well, she then blamed the serpent. It just trickles on down. We continue the blame game. And so what happens is, and I couldn't come up with another D word, so I called it decurse. Decurse happens. (laughs) Write that down. It's (laughs) D-E. Way too much fun up here. Okay. Okay. The curse. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what's the curse about? Because we inherit that into the marital realm too. Now, the curse is about what you read in verse 14. Excuse me. Yes, in verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, and he pronounces a curse upon the serpent. But really, theologically, the, the most important thing there is the thing that goes uh, like this in verse 15. Uh, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Automatic, I just love this, God has already pre-planned the answer, right? So, you, you, you know, you have, you've, you've, you've captured my glory, you've stolen his, his affection away, he voluntarily gave it to you, uh, but you know what? I'm going to fix this. And from the very moment of the failure of my creature, I will tell you exactly how I'll fix it, and you, my friend, will suffer a death blow. And the one that will come from the woman who you've tricked, (laughs) you by comparison will only bruise his heel. Don't you love it? God's magnificent sovereign working is never in jeopardy by the play and intrigue of Satan. Never in jeopardy. And so what happens is he then talks to the woman and he says in great I will greatly multiply your sorrow and uh, and your conception and pain you shall bring forth children. I want to ask you, ladies, was it painful? Yes, yes. It's not painful for the men, you know. I was, (laughs) I'll never forget on our very first child. We've had nine, right? So you could say we're experienced, but the very first one, my wife was so determined not to lose it. She's in there and she's in labor. And she's going. Can I say something? <laughs> oh yes, hon. You know, I, when I was in medical school, there's people are screaming. You know, and she's in there. And she, Can I say something? I said sure. She goes. I say you say whatever you want. You scream as loud as you want. It's okay. It's okay. She goes. Ow. Oh. <laughs> I wanted to go. Is that all you got? <laughs> Yeah, that changed. <laughs> Part of the curse. Part of the curse. You'll never forget that. I'll be shot when she meets you. Okay. <laughs> but here's the important point I want you to see. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's a, this is a very important statement. Now, the word desire here is the very same word used in chapter 4, which is approximately 25 verses later when God is having a conversation with the offspring of of Adam and Eve. And he says to Cain, now sin is crouching at your door, and it's what? Desire is for you. So there's many contextual definitions of desire. And in this particular context, I would suggest, I would make the case, that the word desire means that it's a desire to dominate why would I say that? Because sin is crouching at your door and its desire for is for you. That means sin is trying to rule you, Cain. That's why, that's why I'm giving you the warning about your feelings towards your brother. And what I think is being said here is he's saying part of the curse, Eve, is, is that you will have a desire, you will have that, that internal sort of wish of yours to step out of the God-ordained relationship. And yet I'm going to make it so that there's a sense of frustration because you're your husband will rule over you. In other words, if this is the way you want it, then let's live it this way. That's the idea. And then he calls out Adam. And let me tell you, Adam is really put on, under the microscope here. Look at what God says to him. Then to Adam he said, because, and this is the only, in all the equa- conversations, this is the only conversation where God requotes himself about precisely what Adam did wrong. He says because you heeded the voice of your wife meaning what you did not heed the voice of God All right and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you you quote you shall not eat He's saying this you knew exactly what was wrong you were standing right there remember that word with that we looked at in chapter 2 excuse me chapter 3 you were standing right there you remained passive You let it go You you, you were, That's not. She's from your side. She is your helper, your rescuer. You needed to be the protector. What is wrong with you? Right. That's kind of the idea. In other words, hinted at in these passages is this unique order that was meant that that was meant to be utilized, but was ignored. And the order that we find, and then we'll talk about this in just a second, is I'm going to use the words very carefully. It's called loving authority and willing submission. Notice I did not say willing inferiority. It's willing submission and loving authority. Those were upside-downed, if I may, at the Garden of Eden, where Eve, Eve, Eve you, you took over that place and, and Adam just just became silent and in so doing he chose to disobey the word of God that was supposed to be the guiding light and principle. Everything was turned upside down. This is what you bring into a marriage. This is what we bring into our, our, our lives in general as, as creatures who are born in sin. We, we bring in this, this deception and this denial, and we bring in this, this uh, uh, a whole idea of, of deferral and, and the curse. You might notice it that it happens not only in marital relationships, but any relationships, even work relationships. Everybody wants to, to do things so that you can't be blamed. So you know what they say, document it all, That's especially in medicine, is it not right? document it all, write it all down, law enforcement, write it all down, we need affidavits times 25, you know, it's just crazy, it's all, it, it infects the whole of our society, it's all there, it's definitely in the workplace, it's definitely between siblings, and it's definitely in the local church, those are some of the, these are some of the most corrupting things to the body of Christ, it's all the old nature that permeates out, it's, it's rampant, This is why he's so clear. I've given you exceedingly precious promises by which you might partake of the divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1. He's very clear that he intends that this nature of sin should remain lifeless. And the nature that is of his is to remain full of life. That's how how it works out. Aren't you glad that when we get to the New Testament... He gives you the Spirit of God, whereby the curse can be reversed. Isn't that precious? I love it. Was the curse reversed? Well, the curse was taken care of. At the cross, it says, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, right? He was taking the curse for himself and leaving us the blessing. Now, let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to just establish some of these principles And when I do so, I've asked several of our young people to help me, and I'll let you know when, okay? So calm down. All right, good. So, Ephesians chapter 5, and I need to begin reading in verse 18, because if we don't read verse 18, the whole marital concept here is going to be difficult to follow. Verse 18 says the following. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then as a result of that, there there comes within your soul harmony and melody that cannot be stopped in a way that gives glory to God. Now, having said that, we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The answer in the context is simply this. That there is a comparison being made to being filled with alcohol. Now some have come from the world of alcohol and know it very well. I have not. I've taken care of many patients who have been alcohol, alcoholic and, and intoxicated. And some of the things that happen in that state are, are very, very um, shocking. And some of you here who have been saved out of that previous lifestyle, you'll go, yes. I'm ashamed of that. It's a shocking lifestyle. And the point is is that the alcohol has a way of taking away normal judgment so that you do things you normally wouldn't do. In other words, they used to say the drink controls him. And what he's saying here is, listen, the Spirit of God should control you not in the negative, uncontrolled way that alcohol does, but in a fashion in which your faculties are maintained so that they are obedient to the new principles of God's Word and the curse can be reversed. Now there is a, a, a little short, uh, a short uh, uh, essay done by uh, Dwight Pentecost in his book The Holy Spirit that gives a lot of imagery to this word filled. And so uh, I'd like to repeat that for you. And it goes like this. The word filled has this idea of um, the, uh, the nautical world where the sail of any vessel would be filled with the breeze that comes across the waters, and the sail itself would be fully engulfed by the directional force of that breeze, the wind. Now can you imagine if that sail would just dangle, the vessel would not move, if it was unresponsive to the force of the wind? Or what if only part of the sail was responsive to the force of that wind. The vessel would still not move. The, the uh, Part of the sail would be in, in obedience to the wind, but the other would be dangling and unable to participate in the direction uh, of the vessel's uh, path. What about if there was contrary winds, winds coming from different directions? The, the sail would also be askew. It wouldn't be responsive to the right uh, direction and the right wind of that hour. You see, all those things can come in and corrupt the whole concept. But what is important here is that when that, the, the right breeze comes across the water, it fully engulfs that, that sail almost so that you can just see it poof out in a minute. You know, like that. You ever see that? <laughs> I almost broke my back there. You didn't hear it, but it was like six cracks. And suddenly, every square inch or centimeter of that fabric is fully Under the control of that breeze. That's what he means by filled. Every portion of your soul, mind, will, and emotions is under the perfect control of the Spirit of God. Now, how can you augment that? How can you facilitate that? Well, that happens, I think, by surrender. By surrender. There was a fellow named Eric Liddell who was the Olympian. Remember, the flying Scotsman. They made a movie about him in the 80s. You should see it, The, fly, the Chariots of Fire. And he, in his, one of his biographies, he has a chapter. and It goes like this. It's titled, Absolute Surrender, as he is a prisoner of war in the Japanese internment camp. Absolute surrender. That is the key, isn't it? That is the absolute key to the Christian life. How do you know that? Well, because Jesus said it. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. That's absolute surrender. Take up his cross. That's absolute surrender. And follow me. That's absolute surrender. Do you remember this guy Joshua? Joshua in the Old Testament. He had a meeting. He had a meeting with the angel of the Lord in Gilgal. In Gilgal. It's just a little bit north of Jericho. And as he's contemplating the battle of the next day, as he's thinking about all that would happen with the marching around the city and where the ark would be and the trumpeteers and the, and the fighting soldiers, as he's thinking it through, an angel of the Lord shows up with his sword drawn, and Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And that person says, no. Probably first time in the life of Joshua you ever heard the word no. And he says, no. But as captain of the army of the Lord of hosts, I have now come. I'm neither on your side or their side. Joshua, you need to be on my side. And Joshua does something so unique. He takes off his sandal. It's in the singular in the original language. As if to say, I can't keep this agreement, I can't fulfill my obligation, I surrender it to you. And he takes off his sandal and he tosses it to the feet of the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And then he gets flat on the ground, face to the ground, and he says, what would you have your servant do? What do What kind of exposure do you have as a soldier when your neck is a blade bare on the ground? Well, it's like that day when David execu- or Joshua executed those kings out of that cave. He said, put your foot on my neck and the cold steel of your blade right here and cut away. You know what he's saying? I am totally at your disposal. Surrender. If we're ever going to actually see a change and rebuild that which is called marriages, relationships, it will take, it will demand, it will require absolute surrender. Make no mistake about it. Marriage is beautiful, but it also can be an anvil in which the God of selfishness will perish. I know. I know what that means. My wife knows what that means. She's had to live with me. It will demand that. It will require that. Now, having said that, You'll notice in chapter 5 of Ephesians, it'll say the following words, and I'm going to try to add some color and explanation to them, so bear with me as I read them. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Never forget that last phrase, as to the Lord. Never forget that this is not about flesh and blood. This is about you and your Savior. And it goes like this. For a husband is a head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, for he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let's, let's organize this discussion. I said to you earlier that at the Garden of Eden, the construct of loving authority and willing submission was trampled on. And that was Satan's play, because that was his play in heaven when he wanted to usurp the authority of the throne of God. He was to be lo- willing submission and he wanted the authority, not the love part, the, the authority of the throne. And he infected that same ideology in our nature, in, his, in, 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 when, in the nature of sin, when we adopted it as our own. Thus, that makes us, in essence, offspring of Satan, as Jesus Jesus told those Pharisees that day. But here what he does is he says, now listen, this whole dynamic that was trampled on in the Garden of Eden is now able to be rightly established because the Spirit of God is now filling you, and in your surrender to that, you can see the beauty of what's being displayed. So I'd like to call, do I have six of you guys? Do you have six? Are you three? Come up here. Okay, and I need three more volunteers, preferably below, can you, t- oh, come on up, okay, I need two more, two more, I'm looking, young people, yes, come on up, sweetheart, and I need one more, oh, yeah, come on, oh, thank you, okay, so I need three of you, I need three of you over here, you, and you sit there, and I need three of you to sit on the ground, okay, Okay. Can you sit on the ground over there? Oh, in front of a princess there, right? Go ahead. All right. Can you sit on the ground for me? Just go ahead and sit. Aren't they lovely? Yes. Okay. Yeah, good smile. All right. All right. Am I going to, can I carry this? Okay. Thank you. Now, when we look at the text, it says the husband is the head of the wife, but it also says husbands love your wives. So the word head and love would constitute the concepts of loving authority. Can you see that? These three on the top ledge are the representing loving authority. Do you see that? Normally I have this powerpointed, it's a lot easier. Okay? Now, it says then that the husband is the head of the wife, so that would indicate, and it just uses the word submission. We'll cover that in a second. Go ahead and scoot back just a little bit. Okay? Now, and then it says that she is to do so willingly, right? It's, that's the inference of the passage. So we have willing submission. Now these, this concept, thank you, don't move, it's important. This concept is exactly the concept that you will find in 1 Corinthians 11, where it says, all right, are you ready? It goes, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man, sorry, is the head. we probably should have reversed that somehow. Man is the head of woman. Now it's very important you see these three columns in a reflective, parallel fashion. All right? So what he's saying here is that God if no offense to you, buddy God the Father and Christ the Son have a unique relationship. We would say to you very clearly, that there is no inequality between the two, right? Perfect equality, but one, Christ, takes a place of willing submission under the loving authority of His Heavenly Father. Can I prove that? Oh, yeah. John chapter 5. Just turn to John chapter 5 for me for a second. Don't move, guys. We're almost done. Thank you. John chapter 5 and verse 19 It's a very important concept. Jesus is speaking. He says, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. What does that sound like? Willing submission. Read on. But whatever he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son does in like manner. That's willing submission, isn't it? He doesn't have his own agenda. He's following the agenda of his father. That's willing submission. Now notice the next, excuse me, the next part. For the Father loves the Son. That's loving authority. It's right there in the text. Now, I went through the book of John and the entire New Testament. I've got lots of scriptures to prove that, but this is one of the best ones. Another one is in John chapter 5, verse 30. But So this concept is pretty important. What he's saying is loving authority, willing submission. And I would submit to you that in order for your sin to be paid for, it demands this dynamic. How could your sin ever be paid for if this was not in play? You agree? It requires God, who is judge and loving authority, to, as it say, to allow, as it says in James chapter 2, for mercy to triumph over judgment. God has to judge. And yet, His loving authority, that's the authority is the judgment part, the loving is the mercy part, enters in, And it requires that someone who is outside of our sinful nature, someone who is outside of uh, uh, having no sin of himself, as it says in Hebrews, step up to the plate and then take a place of willing submission. Not just submission with with an attitude of rebellion, but a submission with an attitude that is totally surrendered. A heart that's there. You know, proverbially, we talk about the child who's told to sit down. And they sit down on the chair. And they say, on the outside, I'm still standing up. Right? They're not submissive. They're doing it physically, but their heart is not with you. The Lord Jesus is doing both. Right? That's what He's representing. This dynamic, loving authority, willing submission, is so important. That it becomes, and I would suggest to you, the fingerprints of God. That anything He recreates has these fingerprints on it. Think about it. So, we go over to here. And in the middle portion, we have a perfect reflection. And Christ, who is also man, is now head of man. In other words, he's doing what Adam would never have done, our figurehead of the human race. And therefore, we follow Adam's line, right? So Christ comes into the picture, and he represents loving authority, and we, man, male, are to be willing submission. Then he says, not only is this the dynamic that was germane to paying for your sin, your salvation, I'm going to have that as the dynamic between Christ and man, and I'm going to have that between man and woman. Not because there's an inferiority, because that would re- imply that Christ is inferior, but because it is such a precious dynamic that allowed your salvation to be secured. I want this to be replicated and duplicated and, and shown as one of the most majestic announcements of the manifold wisdom of God. I just think it's brilliant. God uses, he uses people and relationships and gender to bellow out, His magnificent manifold wisdom. And thus when we get into the marital relationship and you have husband and wife and you have family relationship of parent and child and you have work relationship of boss and employee or the New Testament says master and slave or when you get into the assembly, the church relationship of elder and saint, it covers, this fingerprint touches every facet Every dynamic of his new creation. Can you see the value of this? Can you understand why actually God considers this to be so important? And thus, when he saves mankind. Thank you guys. You can sit down. Thank you. We should give them a hand, huh? Thus, when we get to the New Testament... We actually see truly that the curse can be reversed. That's what can happen in your marriage, you see. That's exactly what can be done. That all of a sudden where, where you, you, you have this, this, this tension and this disagreement and this butting of heads, when you actually see how God intended it, you suddenly get this, this clear-cut vision that this is not just about you and me. This mystery is about Christ and his bride. And that's what Paul says. Look at what it says in chapter 5 whoops, in Ephesians. He actually says that statement referring to us. And look down in verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. And notice what he says next. I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see it? It's a lot bigger than us. It's a whole lot bigger than us. And by the way, every facet of our society is predicated on this concept, and it's a lot bigger than us. So, why do you want to respond to a boss who is, who is uh, tyrannical and, and, and sort of insane in their dealings? Why would you do that? Because the loving or the willing submission of the Lord Jesus Christ held his composure so that when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten in return. And believe me, if he would have returned anything, it would have wiped them all out, right? He held his composure because willing submission dictated that he trust in, the, in his heavenly Father to judge righteously. And that's what you do. And we translate that whole dynamic over to the marital, the parental, the church, the workplace, the, the whole thing. This is why it's important that we understand. It has nothing to do with inferiority, otherwise we would say Christ is inferior. It has everything to do with the beauty of the fingerprints of God securing your salvation. That's the beauty of this whole thing. Now I need to stop right there because time is is gone, but this kind of excites me. When I can see the forest for the trees, no pun intended, right? Right? When I can see the the big and small picture and take my little microscope and go from the finite to the large to the infinite and say, wow, what a brilliant God that He would so have His Son take the place of willing submission and my Savior would do it so well. Men, I would remind you of one thing and that dynamic that I showed you there. Remember, your name shows up twice. You are to be willing submission under the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that right, you will never, you will never Exercise loving authority. That is your first place. It says, Christ is the head of man. You, you have to have that clear. That you have an, a loyalty, an allegiance, and an, and an accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ directly that demands your personal, well-developed fear of the Lord. And if you don't know what the, word, the fear of the Lord is, then, then, then it's time to find out and, and we need to look in the Proverbs together. And yet, men, it is also your responsibility. This is why Adam had such the, such the calling out. That you are, to, you are to exercise loving authority as God the Father has done. As Christ does. We don't get off the hook. We have twice as much duty, don't we? Well, well, we'll end there today and we'll continue tomorrow. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your grace. We ask your blessing on the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen.